Hello and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, in our last couple of episodes, we discussed kind of the difference of intellectually thinking about God and feeling God in your heart. And one of the things that came up with that was the notion that we have to leave ourselves to be vulnerable and we have to put ourselves in situations where we can be vulnerable. And to a very real extent, that notion is contrary to what naturally is inside of us because each of us have this natural inclination to want to stay in a safe zone um, due to probably things built in our DNA way long before anyone can really explain them. But you know, there's a fear of being vulnerable and fear is something that drives, that drives us to stay alive with our, you know, desire to stay alive. So when we talk about putting ourselves out there in a relationship and being vulnerable with God, I'd like to discuss that because fear is a giant deterrent in virtually all of our lives. And I'd like to kind of discuss that because as you've brought up many times, vulnerability is basically the start of every relationship. You have to put yourself out there. You don't know what you're going to get because it's new. Um, So it's essential, but it's also something that's scary. And because of that, it's scary things people tend to avoid as we're getting closer to Halloween season. And I remember walking around and just seeing a fake giant spider and people not wanting to walk past it. And that's clearly fake. Um, Vulnerability gives you gut-wrenching fear sometimes. So with that being said, I want to give you a chance to articulate here as this seems to be a, a foundational building block that's required for us to become better in relationships and therefore better with God. Yeah. Thanks for bringing out that uh, topic of vulnerability. I think I'm, I'm happy to be associated heavily with that word. Father Tom Acklin and I, in our books on spiritual direction and personal prayer, focus a fair amount of energy around vulnerability in spiritual direction, how to cultivate that in the directee and how essential that is for uh, fruitful spiritual direction. And then in personal prayer, how we need to cultivate that in our relationship with God. Vulnerability is about uh, interiority. It's about those things that are most personal to us and the things that uh, would hurt the most to be betrayed or violated in some way. And uh, they're it's, it's really goes to the heart of who we are. Sometimes we cover ourselves up. When you mentioned Halloween, I thought you might be going in the direction of costumes and the, to the, the invitation at Halloween, of course, for various uh, reasons to cover ourselves up, to put costumes on. And uh, we do that a lot in human relationships as well. Costumes that um, maybe cover us up completely or costumes that cover us up partially. We have those kinds of things at Halloween, too. There's the costume you totally disappear behind. There's the kind of costume that you're recognizable, but you're just dressed differently. And we do that kind of thing in our relationships, depending on how we present ourselves. But normally, vulnerability grows with time. It grows with trust. 
And as we deepen trust in someone, we're really we're willing to show them ourselves more. And ourselves is always a, a bit of a mixed bag because we're a mixed bag. We're a, a bit of this and a bit of that. And there's uh, some stuff that we wouldn't show to everybody. And there's uh, other parts that we make our public presentation. There are things that we post on the web and post on Facebook, which are universally visible. And there are things that we would only say in the confessional, for example. So those are two different areas of self-revelation, two different areas within us that we might say or not say. So uh, I really appreciate, and I'm sure we've talked about it before to some degree, but it's, I think, worth reiterating the levels of conversational intelligence that Judith Glazer describes in her book, Conversational Intelligence, based on a number of years of research. And she acknowledges or, or defines, based on her research, studying neuroscience and biochemistry and uh, measurable aspects of the human person, uh, brain waves and uh, chemical responses in, in the human person, she identifies three different levels of conversation growing in increasing levels of trust and vulnerability. The first level, which requires the least trust and involves the least vulnerability, is what she calls transactional conversation. And that's a basic fact exchange. There is something vulnerable in that because I'm basically sharing my perception. Uh, that is to say, uh, how's the weather outside? You know, if we were on a phone call or something like that, I'd have to look outside and I'd say something about the weather. I'm giving away something. Now, it's not very private information. It's externally verifiable. Uh, it's, it's just sensory data, but it's something. Uh, likewise, maybe a, a basic question about where are you from? Uh, or how did you get here? Things like that are just factual data. It, it makes sure we're on the same page. And, you know, if, if uh, you're in the same place and you say, uh, how is, uh, how's the temperature outside? And somebody says, oh, it's, you know, freezing. And you look outside and uh, there are people sweating and things melting out there. Then you start to wonder whether you're speaking with somebody who's actually coherent and in touch with reality. The basic level of fact exchange can fail. There is a level of, uh, of vulnerability there. There is a level of trust there that's developed on being able to synchronize on facts. So there's, a, there's some value there. And, and we do that even uh, well anyway. So transactional conversation, uh, level one conversation is a starting point. And as we start to synchronize on facts, we start to build up trust that we're perceiving the same reality. And then we can start to go different about, deeper about how we process that reality. Uh, what Judith Glazer calls positional conversation, level two conversation, is uh, starting to involve my opinion, where maybe I say, I really like the cold weather. So now I've gone beyond that it's cold or that it's warm, and I've now stated an opinion. Or I might even say a little bit more provocatively, cold weather is better than warm weather. Now I've put a little bit of myself out there. That's not an externally verifiable fact. That's something that I believe. And so it's revealing something about uh, what's inside of me. And someone might reject that and say, well, that's no, that's terrible. I, I think warm weather, weather is better. Now, this is a little bit of an inane example. When we get into things like politics or ways to go about business or uh, investments in the stock market or, or, or religion, then we start to get into things that are positional, that involve my opinion, and maybe involve very deeply held beliefs. 
And so we can go deeper into that positional conversation. It's not a totally open conversation because I'm a little bit guarded about my own beliefs. I'm ready to defend them and I'm ready to dismantle yours if you disagree with me. Now, maybe I'm also willing to, to receive from yours uh, to some degree, but in a guarded way. I don't trust you unconditionally. And so what you say, I'm not going to accept just because you said it. But um, the, as I grow in trust, I'm going to listen more attentively, maybe also listen with an ear of defeating your argument or proving my point, or we all do that, looking for the opening that we can use, you know, this kind of thing. So that's all in the realm of positional conversation. I'm sharing more of myself. I'm receiving more from the other person. It requires more trust, um, but it's still guarded. It's still not totally open. And then the third level of conversation she calls transformational conversation. And that's the kind of conversation in which we're completely open, in which we feel free to share anything. And the posture of the person, uh, the other person, is also a posture of discovery, that it's not looking to prove right or wrong what you say. It's looking to learn from what you say. It's an openness that because you said it, I trust it because I trust you. And so I'm really making myself, even in the posture of listening, I'm making myself vulnerable to you because I'm going to allow myself to be shaped by your view of things, by what's happening inside of you, by your experience of reality. And so that's the kind of conversation that requires a lot of trust and a lot of vulnerability. And that's really transformational. It's transformational for the relationship. And it's also uh, transformational of my person. Turns out Judith Glazer discovered that transformational conversations release oxytocin, where we experience real bonding. That's the bonding hormone. Uh, it's also sometimes called the moral hormone because it actually brings out the best stuff in us. We're more inclined to be moral when, our, uh, when we're receiving, our body is releasing oxytocin. And it's the kind of thing that makes us feel good about ourselves. Think about a good relationship or great conversation where you're really connecting with somebody. And uh, then you, you, you know what oxytocin feels like, what oxytocin is uh, like in our bodies. So uh, transformational conversations release oxytocin. And as we remain in that place for a period of time, they can actually have an epigenetic effect, which means that they can modify our DNA, the way our DNA processes and produces uh, proteins. And so things that might have been dormant in us are actually released and change us at a structural level. Transformational conversations can transform us at, a, at the structural level of our DNA. That's how powerful that kind of connection can be. But again, that requires a lot of trust and a lot of vulnerability. And that happens not instantly, but it happens in a succession as we move through transactional and positional conversations and we come to really trust the other person and we open up into that transformational conversation. So that's all hopefully very accessible at a, an interpersonal, a, a human level. And then we can make some analogies to that with our relationship with God, that uh, when we come before God, is it transactional? Am I just asking him for stuff? Am I just telling him things? Or am I really investing more of myself in that? I have a vested interest. I'm trying to promote a position or I'm trying to receive from him, but I'm critical of it. I'm not going to blindly accept anything that I read in scripture or that I hear in prayer. I'm listening with a more critical ear and a little bit guarded about that. 
or do I have a real transformational conversation with him that I'm willing and able to say anything to reveal my whole heart, to expose my whole interior to him, to entrust myself to him. And likewise, I'm ready to receive anything that he has to offer me. I'm ready to receive anything that he wants to give me. And in that time of prayer, teach me through scripture or the, the church's magisterium or those other ways that he reveals himself to us. So um, I think that that structure, it's a little bit of a lengthy discourse, but uh, I think that structure of transactional, positional, transformational conversation really sets the stage for understanding relationships that grow in vulnerability and trust and applies to both human and divine relationships. That is another example of something that we've discussed of how going all in in a relationship with God ends up being beneficial. Um, and, and you can see in there the, the, the tension dynamic there um, that, that we have in our own lives, that if we actually do go through and be willing to open ourselves up, be vulnerable, that our minds actually and our DNA actually creates better environments for ourselves. By us having good relationships, we end up having ourselves become transformed. Um, so that's on the good long-term side, but we're also caught in this dynamic of the fear of going through the beginning of that process um, of the short-term because the fear of being rejected up front in the beginning before you get there can really keep people from getting to the spot of where they ultimately get to celebrate those benefits of the long-term transformation of themselves. And as you said, measurably in our biochemistry. And so we, we all have been in relationship somewhere, you know, can think of some example where we thought something was going to work out and it did not. And we all, all can think of that in many different ways, but we don't really have the ability to conjure that up with God, as you said, because one of those basic starting points is that God isn't guarding himself against us or trying to hide something or hold something back or afraid to see us. He literally bore everything that he could in front of us in his death and in his teachings. So with that being said, the short-term fear that we may feel going to the seventh grade dance of walking across being the only person and talking to the other side of the room, you know, that's real and tangible, but that doesn't exist with God. God is not going to reject you, not going to make you feel weird or awkward or anything like that. And I think that that is something that can really benefit because once we start going down the road of being comfortable with something that's scary it just kind of stops being scary altogether. So if you think of it, probably most of us don't remember learning how to ride a bike and going literally the fastest we've ever gone on our own power before because everyone can bike faster than they can run. And going down a hill and the first time being at the top of it scared and jittery and then doing it once or twice and now you're trying to break the land speed record. And... We forget the fear because we've become, we've overcame it and, and we've learned how to do that. And I think that vulnerability is the same type of thing. Another example people have articulated this with is public speaking is that 
so scared to go up in front of a microphone, but then you see people who do it all the time and it's like, it's nothing. I just got this. And I wanted to, to just kind of point that out as we look at specifically growing in a better relationship with God. Yeah. If we, if we never take a risk, then, uh, then we never grow. It's uh, it's pretty, pretty simple and verifiable from our own experience and different risks have uh, different consequences that go with them. Of course, uh, it's the very definition of risk is that there's a certain cost or a certain price that's, uh, that's involved. There's what's the, what's the possibility of loss. If you wager $5, the possibility is $5. Um, if you wager a thousand dollars or $10,000, obviously then we're, uh, we're talking about bigger risks and, and if, if things are good, you do a risk benefit analysis, then you want to have a good risk benefit ratio so that you don't risk a lot for a small potential gain. You risk a little for a small, for a, a large potential gain as much as possible. And um, so we have to make those kinds of decisions um, for, for somebody who's uh, not going to become a public speaker, you know, taking the uh, I don't know, developing their capacity to stand in front of people and take the risk of, of being rejected and, and making a fool of oneself is uh, maybe less beneficial. Uh, I think of, it's so funny now. I mean, I, I do so much speaking in so many different places before so many different kinds of audiences. And there are still places that I get nervous because in some places, the risk of rejection is more significant. You know, if I'm giving a talk to a, a number of bishops and they decide that I'm a fool or that I'm heretical or that I have some other fundamental problems, then, you know, the cost can be fairly significant. If I'm in front of a group of people that I'm never going to see again and uh, have no other influence on my life, then, you know, it's obviously a much smaller risk involved in doing that public speaking. But it's a uh, I don't go to too many wedding receptions, but periodically I'm at a wedding reception and get to witness somebody giving a toast. And uh, I, it, it reminds me, I, I remember very well when I gave the toast at my brother's wedding before I ever did any public speaking and some of the nerves that I had in that giving a, a probably pretty poor toast compared to what I could give now and what I can do spontaneously for that matter compared to what I had sketched out on a piece of paper and I see people sweat it literally sweating over some of these things and I'm very moved by that because why are they taking that risk well because they really love the person who is getting married and that's very touching you know and even it comes out and it's all kind of a mess and uh, it's not very organized and they miss their own punchline for their joke or uh, you know I mean just different things that are such amateur speaking problems but but somebody who's willing to take the risk to do something that they're not very good at doing because they really love the the bride or the groom and they really want to give their best and and fulfill their role yeah i just find that very very moving and 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 that gift of love is received and so that's a that's an example where the risk benefit analysis is very great the you know at the worst case they make a stupid toast and nobody remembers it anymore and who cares there's really not much of a of a loss there but the, the gain in any case is that expression of love, somebody who's willing to put themselves out there for the sake of somebody else. And that's a great gain, you know? So those are the kinds of things as we look at 
different uh, decisions we make in our lives, different ways that we become vulnerable, what our motives are for doing that. Uh, we may make greater risks to make money, which is not lasting. Money doesn't last. Money is a means to an end. Love lasts. Relationship lasts. Uh, and those are the things that we, we're storing up for heaven. So we should be careful about how great a risk we're willing to make for the sake of money, how little risk we make for the sake of love and relationships. That's a life that's not well lived. We need to make greater risks for relationships. We need to make lesser risks for things that are passing away and uh, or, or, you know, maybe great risks for both. We can live a, we can live a life that's somewhat adventurous. A, a life with more risk tends to be more adventurous. Now, if we're making stupid risks, then there's a foolhardiness there. And as we've talked about many times, you know, virtue lies in the middle in between being foolhardy and being, uh, being fearful. Virtue is, is in the middle and making good risks for good reasons is, uh, is part of what makes life really exciting and, and really beautiful. Yeah, and, and that's something that we'll want to touch on in our, our next episode there. And we thank everyone for listening to us here today. Um, again, if you're listening to us from an Apple device, please leave a review or at minimum click the star rating. It dramatically helps us coming up in the algorithm that they use for people who are searching for new types of podcasts. So we thank everyone who has been listening, and we will be with you again here next week.